Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Canada saved more during the pandemic than any other G7 nation. RBC estimates households saved about $280 billion extra. Some of that money went to paying down non-mortgage debt. Other cash was diverted to financial and household investments. But a large chunk is still sitting in the bank, worth about 10% of Canada's GDP, or enough to keep the entire restaurant industry afloat for more than three years. What Canadians do with that money will have a big impact on GDP, the cost of living, and the Bank of Canada's monetary policy. For insight into what's next, I sat down with John Stackhouse, Senior Vice President at RBC, and Cynthia Leach, Senior Director of Thought Leadership. We began by discussing the light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel. It is a light at the end of one of the COVID tunnels. The immersion from the pandemic is going to be as complex and challenging in many ways as uh, those dark early days and months were of, uh, of shutting down, locking down and managing to get, uh, get through. We all remember the K-shape uh, references, which were a big meme a number of months ago, and, and that's playing out. This is the K-shaped recovery, and we're seeing very strong uh, parts of uh, the labor force returning, overall numbers looking really strong, but a number of businesses still struggling, uh, even though aggregate demand may be, may be quite good, it is highly dispersed. We're getting close, but we're not quite there. But if you look at the big numbers, employment levels have recovered, as you said. We saw a gain in hours worked, uh, which means the hours worked are about recovered. But as John alluded to, the employment rate is still above pre-pandemic levels. Even though it came down, it's a percentage point above. And that reflects weakness in various sectors. So if you look at job um, employment uh, versus the pre-pandemic, in a sector like food and accommodation services, it's over 200,000 below where it was pre-pandemic. And if you contrast that on the other end with areas of strength, you have business, professional, and scientific services where you have a gain of 160,000. So the question is, uh, you know, will we see this um, narrowing on this employment gap in a sector like food and accommodation services? And where, from where is that employment going to come? Because if you look, if you just do the simple math on the people that are still unemployed, and if you consider, you know, just going back to a long-term uh, unemployment rate of about 6%, you, you don't have enough people to fill the gap, even in food and accommodation services. And we know yet that not all those people necessarily will migrate back to the same area. One of the most interesting things about jobs reports from Stats Canada was that uh, showing what you might have expected, that food and accommodation workers are less likely than average to return once unemployed to the sector they were initially employed in. And the other outlet, which is, you know, increasing the labor force is also a challenge because we know we have high rates of labor force participation in Canada. And so I think you run head on into this topical issue on everyone's mind around labor shortages and the new set of challenges that represents. Well, tell me about those challenges. As you point out, the restaurant industry is reeling from that loss of staff, and the numbers suggest that people have moved into white-collar work or, or elsewhere. We're also super concerned about inflation, and food price inflation's been an issue. Are we expected to see that restaurant industry start to raise the, the wages of sector employees to draw them back and therefore pass on those costs to the consumer? That's a possibility. I mean, labor shortages, we are seeing, you know, for example, high levels of vacancies across the country. And if you look at job postings, you know, these are pretty broad-based um, uh, challenges 
in terms of labor shortages. And, you know, there's various strategies for businesses to deal with it. And one of them is they could uh, be translated into wage pressures. We haven't quite seen that yet in a significant way, um, but it's a possibility. I don't want to get too personal here, Michael, but I, I, I was in a restaurant recently in Toronto and went to uh, the restroom and there was a sign there in clear letters. We are looking for uh, wait staff, uh, pastry chefs, dessert chefs, uh, bartenders. <laughs> okay, this is a labor market that uh, is a little different from anything I'm familiar with. So, yeah, we're going to have we're, we're going to see lots of interesting adjustments over the winter. Yeah, nothing like somebody finishing up a meal and then rolling up their sleeves and doing their own dishes. <laughs> if an RBC survey found that three out of four Canadians intend to spend more at local businesses as the economy reopens, but higher income households have one in three of those squirreled away dollars and the low income households have only one in 10 of those dollars, what does that tell us about the nature of the spending recovery? Yeah, so, uh, you know, these excess savings of about $280 billion, according to our calculations, are a potential source of aggregate demand for the economy, but as you said, the distribution of those excess savings varies quite a bit um, with it concentrated in high-income households who tend to spend, you know, in aggregate less. Uh, we did see high, you know, um, percentage increases for low-income households, but on average, the, you know, the lowest quintile of households are still dissaving. Higher income households will end up spending these savings. They might not be on goods and services, they could be on assets. Higher income households do spend more on services, a sector where we still are seeing some weakness. Um, so it's a question mark uh, for, for um, you know, the, the months ahead, how much of these household savings sitting in bank accounts are translated into economic activity. There's a real distribution challenge there as well, which we'll see play out in interesting ways where there is going to be uh, concentrated demand uh, geographically, uh, but also sectorally and even in, in ranges within w within the sector, that's going to skew e even demand for labor in those places. So labor at high end resorts, for instance, uh, this this winter uh, will be in hot demand, and one would anticipate uh, wages going up accordingly. Uh, but that may not be the same in other areas of accommodation and other parts of the country or in different uh, ranges. Of spending. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, meantime, is reporting that 70% of its membership took on a remarkable amount of debt during the pandemic. So let's look at the other side of that equation. Sure, the consumer was saving, but the small business community took on an average $170,000 in debt. What impact will that added debt load have on growth? Absolutely. That, that $170,002, of course, is an average. Mm -hmm. And that survey reported that that figure was, you know, almost, I think it was twice as high for harder hit areas like the food and accommodation sector. And, you know, that survey reports that business owners are concerned about servicing those debt levels with about a third of them thinking it'll take a couple years to repay, um, you know, over 10% worried about repaying it at all. And there, you know, there is an element that some of these debt levels might be overstated because some of them are from government programs that repaid in time, have a forgivable portion. And we do know that in aggregate, the business sector has accumulated a lot of liquid assets that might help for servicing debt, but that's obviously going to vary a lot by business sector. We, we can't break it down uh, that data to, you know, in terms of small businesses, but the bottom line is this debt overhang is expected to be consequential. 
with, you know, businesses reporting that it's going to affect um, income distributions to owners, affect uh, funds available for expansion. And, you know, when we think about the challenges, the medium term challenges facing small business around digitization or greeting of their operations or dealing with these labor shortages, that debt overhang could really impact investment and training budgets. You know, John, you had told us a year ago or so that businesses needed to pivot. And with the shift towards online sales appearing permanent, how is the digitalization of business looking a year later? What role does that play in post-pandemic growth? It's actually going okay. Uh, There has been significant progress in the digitalization of a range of Canadian businesses, but especially SMEs. Over, uh, over the last 18 months. A lot of this is survival instinct. It's been fascinating to see uh, entrepreneurs uh, figure out where you know, the puck is going, to use the cliche, and uh, to, to get there uh, ahead of it. And they're doing that on the digital rink, um, but not nearly fast enough and not, not, not using digital sufficiently enough to scale which is the real power of, of, of digital and, and investing in, in data systems that allow you really to extract consumer insights, market intelligence uh, from, from scaling. That's the lesson, the great lesson of the, the, of the platform economy. And while a lot of Canadian entrepreneurs and SME operators are taking advantage of that, uh, and that's exciting to see, uh, we really need to up our, up our ambition. If RBC's prediction that one in four tradespeople in Canada will need to upgrade their skills within five years because of digitalization, you know, aside from the wait staff problem that you're finding in the restrooms of the restaurants today, what's the path to success? We need to focus a lot more on real-time reskilling and find new channels for this. And this is really important for uh, SMEs because they don't have the resources for big training programs, for corporate training. They've got people who also don't want to maybe take a leave to go study a course, but just want a module uh, that they can use on their smartphone uh, while they're commuting or if they've got a, an hour or they're paid an hour to, uh, to engage in that real-time skills development. As a country, we know how to do this. We've got really good educators in the private and public education systems, uh, and we know the appetite is there. And we've got some really interesting platforms in this country that are thriving, not just in Canada, but uh, but globally. But again, we need to scale it. We need to understand that you know the hundreds of thousands of Canadians who work for small and medium-sized enterprises uh, will need to continuously uh, up their skills to be more competitive, more relevant, and more productive, which is going to increase uh, their long-term wage prospects um, using digital capabilities. We know that there's a big divergence in Canada on who has access to training. And often, you know, lower wage or lower skilled workers don't have access to that on-the-job training. And yet those are some areas um, that have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic and could continue to be based on the disruptions going forward. One thing that comes up a lot as we talk about uh, the post-pandemic recovery is that desire for a more hybrid working environment. And we see these figures where people say, oh yeah, if my company doesn't let me work from home a couple of days a week, I'm quitting and I'm finding another job somewhere else. Um, We know from consumer surveys that people often say one thing and do another. How concerned ought we to be about companies being firm about you've got to be back in the shop? It, it's a 
important and interesting tension that's uh, playing out differently in different parts of the world. But uh, in North America, there is also a, a, a bit of a divergence between the U.S. and the U.S. Is, is, has its own uh, diversity of uh, regions and, and cultures, uh, but a bit of a divergence from the Canadian approach. Uh, we have been collectively across Canada a bit slower to return to premises, as it's called. But there, there are differences. I, you know, I talk to people in BC, in Vancouver specifically, uh, there is a greater return to offices than you see in, let's say, downtown, down, downtown Toronto. That may shift fairly, fairly quickly, but it is a employee market right now, um, generally, but especially in the higher end uh, parts of the economy. You know, Cynthia quoted the uh, the professionals uh, and serv- serv- the professional services sector numbers, which are <laughs> an indication of incredible strength in that area. And people in any number of professions or higher end services have strong negotiating power. And a lot are looking at hybrid, but a tilt towards remote working as part of the hybrid uh, makeup and are able to, uh, to get that in the, uh, in the marketplace. These things will all balance out in the, in, in the longer run, but it's going to be an interesting tension probably for the next, uh, the next number of, uh, of months. And one of the challenges we're thinking through, Michael, is what's the knock-on effect, uh, especially for SMEs that, um, you know, you think of all the service providers in commercial centers that have built themselves up over the decades on an assumption that there will be tens of thousands of people (laughs) coming into a small geographic area five days a week. Uh, That's the business model for thousands of entrepreneurs across the country. Uh, It applies to shopping malls and main streets as well, but commercial centers uh, acutely so, given the the hybrid conversations that that you asked about. And what is going to be the impact on, you know, here in Toronto, we have the PATH system, as it's called, the underground uh, corridors uh, with hundreds and hundreds of shops that... uh, are really struggling to get by because the towers above them are not just less populated than they were. The flow of people is really erratic. Um, If there's a Leafs or Raptors game on, there's tens of thousands of people coming through the path. Um, If (laughs) there's nothing on, uh, then there can be no one. How do you operate a business with that uh, with that high variance, uh, that's one of the tensions that we're going to be keeping an eye on over the, the the coming months, and needs to be factored in not just for employers but for policymakers to think about the uh, second order, if, if I can uh, refer to it as that, the second order impacts of uh, return to return to office. As John had pointed out, this is an employee market. So what does this mean for wage pressures and the impact that will have on small to medium-sized business growth? And broadly speaking, inflation as those businesses have to pass on those wage pressures to the consumer. Yeah, wage pressures are definitely a, a potential source of inflation. And you know, it's certainly a challenge for small businesses because they're facing you know, competition for workers with bigger businesses that are paying, um, you know, bigger compensation packages or providing a different employee experience. So to go back to the prior question on work from home, we know that, you know, uh, private sector firms 
Um, we're twice as likely to have employees that worked from home versus smaller ones. And yet we know that that's a preference for a lot of workers. And so uh, that's an interesting aspect of the digitization challenge for small and medium-sized businesses. It's not just selling products and goods online, but also finding ways to recruit workers who want to work from home. And that can definitely translate into, you know, having to pay more. While employees were twice as likely to work from home if they were employed by a large company, how should small business rethink its plan to attract workers in a tight labor market when it's not just about the paycheck? Yeah, I think you, I think you said it. It's about looking at the holistic experience. And, um, you know, what we need to focus on is the challenges that small businesses have, whether it's, you know, the debt loads of the pandemic or just, the, you know, the long-term challenges at scaling um, to find new approaches so that, you know, small businesses can have medium-term views of their employment and training needs and, and ways to uh, operationalize plans related to that. It, it, it's a great opportunity, Michael, for every employer to think about why they have a premise uh, for premises for uh, for work if it can be done from from anywhere. So why do you have an office? Why do you have a shop floor? Uh, maybe there's obvious reasons, but be, beyond those, especially for the intangible benefits of people coming together, uh, how, how do you measure that? What's your goal for those in, in, intangibles with, with innovation, creativity, uh, culture? We talk a lot about, but we're not very good at articulating, defining, and measuring. Smart employers are starting to do uh, to do just that, uh, and uh, and and that can include um, a lot of entrepreneurs and, and and small business operators. Often, when we say small business, people's the, the collective imagination goes to the mom and pop shop or to retail operations where you know, you you need a physical premise, but it can also be a design operation. Uh, an engineering firm, an architect, an architecture shop, uh, an ad agency of you know ten or twenty people, um, all the services uh, that are thriving and selling uh, their intelligence to the world uh, often are rooted in SMEs. That's a wonderful part of the Canadian economy, and those things, of course, can be done from anywhere. Uh, so, but often they're done better more creatively, more innovatively when people are in person and collaborating. But it's now on the uh, the entrepreneurs, the owners, the managers to be thinking about, okay, how, how am I going to use my workplace uh, when people are in person to really, really develop that value and then you know, let people disperse and work from anywhere to do what, uh, what else they need to do or want to do? John, you just put a big pit in my stomach on behalf of the entire commercial real estate market. What is the knock-on effect to economic growth when you've got an entire sector wondering how much square footage they really need? But it doesn't need to be. We, we, we need square footage, but we need to use the square footage differently. Uh, we spent a lot of years jamming each of us into honeycombs, uh, being as close as possible because that was you know, supposed to spark innovation. Uh, getting rid of offices. And now we're looking at space. And I mean, this, the, the, the we broadly, I'm seeing this across the economy. People are looking at space differently. So how do we use commercial real estate more creatively? Whether it's in offices to create creative zones, to create cultural zones, to make coming to work more than coming to a cubicle. In fact, this, this may finally liberate us from that uh, beehive of cubicles, if that still exists, um, and it's not the, the, the cubicle that I've, I've, I've got a beef with. <laughs> it's, it's the culture that it, that it uh, 
creates. And this may allow us to have more creative cultures. And maybe I work from home one day to do my emails. Coming into the office to do email is kind of a stupid thing to, to, to do. So I'll do my emails on Monday and come into the office to jam with, with, with others, to, to learn from others, to, to try to innovate, to spend a lot of time at a whiteboard. Maybe I don't turn on a, a computer when I'm in the office. Um, but you know, e- each organization and group within organizations is going to find its own way, as they should. But we all need to look at this as an opportunity, and that includes for cr- uh, commercial real estate. And the leaders in the space, I think, are seeing it that way, that uh, there's going to be demand for space, but it's going to be perhaps for a different and rapidly evolving kind of space. So if there was one lesson then from this conversation that an SME should take away from it, what would it be? I think I would say that these acute challenges right now around supply chain issues and labor shortages are you know, just that, really acute, and that some of this will fade over time. But there's a persistent dimension to it. You know, labor shortages are ultimately related to population aging. And, um, you know, that's going to be with us for a while. And some of these supply chain issues could have really long tails. And so it's important to, you know, in amongst all the firefighting today to find time to reflect on the medium term demands and strategy as a business owner to be dealing with these, you know, medium term challenges. Our small business report was entitled Small Business Big Pivot. And the big pivot is critical. So any small business owner, operator, investor, or ally who has not pivoted through this crisis, pivot quickly because demand, as we all know, has has, has taken off. That's going to continue for a good while longer. But these are real critical moments for differentiation uh, in a crisis, but coming out of a crisis now. So whatever sector you're in, this is a moment to, to differentiate to invest in, whether it's digital technologies or data tools that allow you to get ahead of your competition, to get the right people, uh, not just anyone, uh, the right skills on board, and ensuring that, you, that, that the great people that you have are getting the skills that they're going to need in the, uh, the years ahead. Because as we all know, if, uh, if we don't do those things, uh, we can be sure others uh, on planet Earth or maybe right next door are, uh, are actively doing that and going to seize the advantage. John, Cynthia, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. John Stackhouse is the Senior Vice President at RBC, and Cynthia Leach is the Senior Director of Thought Leadership at the bank. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, on November 25th, reviewing the Innovation Superclusters Initiative, Success or Failure, a webinar with Dr. Catherine Beaudry, the Professor of Economics of Innovation at Polytechnique Montréal, Daniel Herman from the Ontario Ministry of Colleges and Universities, and former Deputy Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada, John Newbley. And on the 29th, Connecting to What Matters, a webinar with Neil Cunningham, the President and CEO of the Public Sector Pension Investment Board. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhowe.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.